Hi, welcome to the PAPSC podcast. I'm Becky Schultz and I use they, them pronouns. And I'm Dave Measle and I use he, him pronouns. Uh, We're very excited to have you back with us uh, for this podcast. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the general topic of of self-harm. And we have a a great guest with us today. Uh, Her name is uh, Abigail Bocardi. Uh, We're really excited to have Abigail with us. Um, So I'm going to hand it over to you, Abigail, so you can kind of introduce yourself and give some of your background. Thanks. Um, Abigail Bocardi. I use she, her, they, them pronouns. Um, I'm a certified peer specialist, and it's newer for me. It's been a year uh, since I started, um, actually this month. So, but... um, Yeah, uh, peer specialist working for a pretty big health organization here in Pennsylvania, and I'm really enjoying the, really enjoying the job. What kind of background did you have um, before you came into peer support? Was it anything related to mental health? No. (laughs) Um, Before I came into peer support, I worked for... um, a lot of retail experience, a lot of customer service experience, but the big career I had before that was video game and public relations stuff. So worked for a game company for a couple of years uh, doing like Twitter and forum support. Awesome. Yeah, I never would have guessed that because you're so well-versed in mental health from what I've experienced with you. Just so everybody knows um, how I met Abigail was we started working on a training called peer support for when self-soothing becomes self-harm. And uh, that was a great experience working with Abigail on that. And uh, she brought a lot of personal lived experience to that training that really makes it a lot more valuable to the people who get to receive it. So I appreciate your time on that, Abigail. Of course, I really enjoyed it as well. I like, I've always been interested in teaching people stuff and being able to share my experiences with people you know, finding out peers were a thing, uh, it just, everything fit. Um, yeah, psychi- uh, psychology and mental health and all that kind of stuff has always been a big thing for me. Um, and then before becoming a peer, I volunteered for support groups and things like that. So it was always kind of something in the background, um, but never realized it could be something that I would kind of go into as a career. So if you don't mind me asking, what brought you to peer support or how did you find peer support from uh, uh, a background that that really isn't mental health related? Um, I kind of come from a a similar background and I I did customer service and things like that prior to uh, peer support. So it's, it's, I always find it interesting to hear people's journeys to this profession. Well, it involved... um some not so great stuff happening uh, during my career uh, in video games there. And, um, you know, dealing with the behavioral health and mental health stuff that I had at that point, um, the pattern that I had led me to going to a partial program. Uh, And at the partial program, I met a peer specialist. I had no idea that those kind of roles existed before. And meeting that peer there, my brain went, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do. And I immediately started looking into trainings and looking at ways to pay for the training and got one for as quick as possible. That was back in um, the beginning of 2020. Nice. Yeah, I think that's a, I've heard that a lot from people who have received peer services and been inspired to enter this field is that, you know, 
they they met a peer support, you know, whether that peer support was providing them services or through some other means, um, and that inspired them to enter this work. So uh, that's yeah, really exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if you don't mind me asking, because uh, you know, as I said uh, at the beginning of the of the episode, this uh, episode is focused on on self harm. Um, and, and Becky just shared that, uh, that they met you um, through the creation of a training. Uh, could you share some of your background and insights on this topic? I could talk for a long time about it, but I, I've experienced self-harm personally. Uh, I've had a large number of friends that have experienced it personally, and I definitely feel like it is one of the, in my experience, has been one of the most misunderstood and has the most stigma that I've experienced when it comes to that. I think I struggled with it for, I don't even know how, how long, off and on for a few years. So dealing with that directly gives me a better understanding. And then I want to be able to use that experience to help other people kind of understand and remove that stigma so people aren't judgmental when it comes to what exactly self-harm is. Yes, that's the best way I can kind of put it. The experience that I have is personal and and direct. I I've self harmed myself, and um, not something I want anybody to 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 look at as a valid option for for coping. <laughs> but it's an understandable coping mechanism. Yeah, can we discuss self harm a little more broadly for a second? Because I know you, your experience was more. Um, with cutting, am I correct? Yes, correct. Um, but throughout the training, I think something that really stuck out to me was that self-harm can encompass so many things. So can you give us some examples of just some stuff that you might not think of as self-harm that is? Personal experience that I had was was smoking cigarettes. Uh, that's what I switched to in order to become more socially acceptable to self-harm. I didn't smoke because or at least I didn't start smoking because I, I wanted to have a cigarette. I, I started smoking because it was something I could do to harm myself that nobody looked at as taboo. Um, but that's a good one. I think some of the other ones that were brought up during the our research and the training were things like over-exercising, you know, pushing yourself way too far. Um, not just challenging yourself, but like, you know, harming yourself. So... But that was exercising. I think we talked about overeating. I think there was um, mentions of I'm trying to remember some of the other ones. I can help you out. Yeah, I, I don't remember. Them. I don't remember all of them. Um, one of the other ones that I thought was interesting, and you named a lot of the ones that I was thinking of, um, and I think that's really helpful for people to hear that you know they can apply the lessons that a lot of people have learned from recovery, from self-harm to those things that we've talked about, like overeating and over-exercising. But something else that came up was punching walls. Oh like, yeah. People don't think of that as self-harm, but it clearly is. If you like look at it on the face of it, of what it is, it's harming yourself because you're so upset. Um, right. So I think that's, a really interesting one too. But um, something I wanted to ask you was what makes self-harm so hard to stop doing? For me, it was the fact that it was the only thing that worked so well. I had therapists at the time. I was 
pretty sure I had medications for the anxiety and stuff I was experiencing at the time. Even later on, though, I did have the the medications and stuff, but none of them seemed to work as well. And it was something that was guaranteed to work and it was quick and simple. And I know all those things make it sound very positive, but it was that that's why it's so difficult to to break away from it, at least in my experience, is that it is something that you get to the point where you go, yeah, that's definitely going to work and help me feel a bit better and help me cope with things. And I don't have to worry about experimenting with different meds or finding a therapist that understands. I know it's going to work and I can get through the day. And that's why it's so hard to kind of stop doing it, at least from my experience. I just, I want to go back to to the concept that we were talking about just a second ago of, um, you know, other ways that people self-harm. Cause I think that's such an important point. I think if you went up to someone on the street and just, you know, ask them about their impression of self-harm and people who, who do that, their impression would be the kind of the traditional cutting and things like that. But there's so many other ways that people engage in self-harm uh, that, that you wouldn't think about. And I think your point about smoking cigarettes is such an interesting point. You know, of course, there are people who smoke cigarettes just because they want to and, you know, for, for lots of different reasons. But that's fascinating to me that you used it as a method of self-harm. And I don't think it's something that anyone would ever come up with or think of, you know, and be like, oh, that's, you know, they're, they're doing this as a expression of self-harm or, you know, or whatever. Um, that's such a fascinating concept or idea to me. It was actually how I got away from cutting was I started smoking cigarettes. Um, and I think in, in the training, I kind of compared um, myself harming as, uh, as smoking cigarettes. Like when I, before I actually picked up a pack of cigarettes, I would have quote unquote smoke breaks where I would go out and arm myself between um, uh, during breaks at uh, at work. So it was something that it was easier to go, okay, I'm just going to go buy a pack of cigarettes. So that way I can be social and, you know, not be the loner that walks off to their car on their, their 15 minute break and still be able to get that experience of going, I'm doing something negative to myself, which is what you know, helped with the self-harm um, transition from cutting to smoking. Yeah. What advice uh, would you give someone who wants to stop? self-harming just one piece of advice because i'm sure you have a million <laughs> yeah um talk to someone about it I, I think that was the biggest thing that helped me was talking to friends or um other people that have experienced it before when i started like obviously um you know, it's talked about in TV shows and it's talked about in, um, you know, YouTube videos and blog posts. You know, it's, it's, it's a pop culture thing that that's used in movies uh, for stuff. So it, it's always kind of in the back of your mind. But I still felt alone that nobody else understood why I was doing it. And being able to kind of talk to friends or other people that understood, you know, it made me feel less. And I don't like using the word, but it made me feel less crazy. You know, um, it made me feel less alone. It made me feel less misunderstood um, because I could turn to somebody and be like, hey, I had this struggle today. And they go, yeah, no, I totally get that. I, I, I deal with the same thoughts. I deal with the same actions. So talking to somebody who understands uh, at least was helpful for me. Yeah, I think that's awesome. What would you tell, like, how would you explain to someone who doesn't understand it at all, you mentioned the stigma associated with it. And I agree with you. I think there's a ton of stigma associated 
with self-harm um you know of course there's stigma with with all mental health but there's i think there's specific stigma associated with self-harm as well what would you tell someone who doesn't really understand it how would you explain to them what self-harm did or or or, or why you did it uh, to help them understand it i think the first thing that's very important is that it is there's no one answer for that um everybody who self-harms those commonalities don't get me wrong but everybody who self-harms is kind of getting something a little different out of it um you know uh, that that's why there's different ways of self-harming that's why um uh, i did it to for a couple different reasons but the 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 big one was being able to put a specific thing to the emotional pain i was feeling um it it's it's something that allows me to look at a physical act and go that's what's causing me the pain or it's a physical representation of the emotional pain and it allowed me to kind of release the valve release the pressure for a bit and understanding that it is a coping mechanism it's a it's a it's a tool that while not exactly the healthiest is something that people use to get by and not just immediately jump to the conclusions of you know it's a suicidal act or um you know those kind of things i think is is really important for people to understand um I think that's the biggest part of the stigma is that they don't understand that this is a tool that people are using in order to get through the day in order to function. And just like taking away somebody's pack of cigarettes or taking away, um, you know, let me think of a healthier one, you know, taking away somebody's access to their movies or music that they listen to every day to help get through the day, it's going to have the same effect. Um, Movies and music are obviously a healthier option, but you know, just kind of going, you need to stop 100%. You can just stop it. It doesn't work that way. It becomes so ingrained in how you're coping throughout the day that it's it's part of what you need to do to get by. Yeah, and I, I don't know if Dave knows this, but I had a very brief relationship with self-harm, uh, with cutting. Um, it was a long, long time ago. And I mean, for me, the reason was I was there were a lot of things going on in my life that I couldn't control. And it was the one thing that I was like, I can control this. If I can't control anything else, I can control my pain. So that was definitely something that um, was, I heard of it and that made me think that it might be an option for me. And I think that's where I get nervous where people hear about all these different ways to self-harm and it gives them ideas of ways to do it. Um, but there's no controlling that because it's just out there in the right. internet and how I heard about it was a magazine. Right. So, I mean, you're going to find out about it. So w- what do we do to kind of combat it without adding to the stigma? That that's, that's a good question. <laughs> um, because it, you run into that sort of thing where, you know, we need to talk about this so people don't do it. But talking about it gives people the idea that that's something you can do. Um, but I know that I didn't learn about it, at least for, you know, my experience was I didn't learn about it by talking to a mental health professional who mentioned it or hearing, you know, a podcast like this where somebody was talking about coping skills and what it is and how, you know, to manage those kind of things. I heard about it in pop culture. 
you know, it was the whole, you know, that's what edgy goths do, quote unquote, you know, that that was the the concept. And I was like, well, maybe there's something to it. That was my thought process. It wasn't it wasn't any sort of realistic conversation about what self-harm was. It was movies and, you know, a misrepresentation done for drama. Well, and I, I think it's important that we don't demonize it either. Um, you know, certainly we don't want to glamorize it, but like you mm-hmm. were saying, Abigail, it's it is a coping mechanism, and many people use it as a tool. Um, and in some cases, and at least in their minds, they're using it as a tool of wellness. Um, you know, to to cope with and to manage the other feelings or thoughts or things that are going on in their lives. So I don't think it, it's helpful to demonize it and be like, oh, it's it's bad, it's evil, you shouldn't do it. Um, I think the important thing is to work with them to find uh, other tools that maybe aren't as harmful to them, um, you know, or, or other more healthy, if, if you want to use that. I'm yeah. not even sure what the correct terminology or, or verbiage would be, but um, find other tools, wellness tools but I, I don't think it's helpful to demonize anything. No, I, I agree completely. I think what makes it tricky is that you, when you're doing it, you're thinking of yourself as bad. You know what I mean? Like you're, you might be trying to avoid doing something else bad. So there's already like a bad connotation to it, which doesn't necessarily reflect how supports should see it. And I think that's the difference, like understanding that when you're working with somebody who is practicing self-harm as a coping skill, um, you want to make sure you're viewing it just as another coping skill that there might be a better alternative for rather than just this is the worst thing somebody could do because it's not, I mean, and something we talk about in the training is that, you know, harm reduction might be an option for self-harm, which would be where you're doing less of it. Um, And it also brings up that there's alternatives that are self-harm that could be worse for your health than cutting. We want people to get medical attention when they need it from practicing self-harm, but we don't want to cut them off from society because they do it. And I think that's an issue that we're still facing in mental health. I think another important thing that you touched on there was, you know, the the thought of I'm doing a bad thing. You know, there was a lot of guilt and shame that I had from self-harming, from cutting. I still wear long sleeves 90% of the time because of the the association with it. I'm not ashamed of it anymore, um, per se. Obviously, I still wear long sleeves, but it's mainly for other people's benefits so they don't feel uncomfortable. I don't have a problem with it now, but back then, I had long sleeves all the time, including in the summer. You know, I, I didn't want anybody to really know. It's why I didn't even talk to the therapist that I had at the time that I was struggling with it because just the stigma and the shame that came with it makes it difficult to even talk about. And I think opening that that line of dialogue with people is important to, you know, again, going back to what I said earlier, make them feel less alone and make them feel more understood when it comes to that kind of struggle. Yeah, and relating to that, I had a question. Um, how can someone who is left with scars from self-harm view them in a more positive way? I view them as battle scars. 
Um, I'm a big um, fantasy role-playing kind of person. I, I do a lot of RPG gaming and, and video gaming. And, you know, uh, the experience that your character, you know, from battles and stuff that they have kind of shows up as scars in a couple of the games that I play. And I look at my scars now as a battle that I won against um, against self-harm. It, 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 they're sort of, you know, I... I'm trying to think the best way to put it. I'm kind of like that mercenary that sits in the corner that has all those scars from from all of the the uh, uh, battles that they they completed. Um, not that I'm proud of them, but I view them as a, a battle won. Uh, it was something that I struggled with, and it was something that I won against it. And unfortunately, there was, you know, I, I took um, there were wounds that I took from that struggle, but I won against it, and that's how I view them. It's different for everybody else, but that's how I view them. That's how I, I describe them. Um, so how do you kind of maintain your recovery today? Like, what are some things you do to support you in that? Well, I just kind of touched on a little bit video games. Um, friends, tabletop stuff. Um, things that I can kind of put all of the energy and thought that I did um, into so doing those kind of things helps me process things that i experience because you can go through you know doing the tabletop role playing and stuff like that but it's mainly video games music is huge for me i've got a couple guitars back in the corner behind me so i play music sometimes too just i have where in the past self-harm was one coping skill that did a lot I unfortunately needed more of other coping skills or wellness tools to have the same effect. But having that variety and having those multiple tools have the same effect gives me more options throughout the day. So I am. Um, there's a lot of things that I do like that. Like right now I'm sitting at my desk with three different monitors and my, you know, gaming system and everything. So that this is kind of, what I do in order to to give myself something to focus on at the end of the day and, and take my mind off of any sort of negative experiences that I've had. So again, a big part of uh, the people who listen to our podcast are of course, pure professionals. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a big part of being a peer is being able to share lived experience, but of course, you know, our, our, our individual lived experience doesn't always line up exactly with the peers that we work with. Uh, what would you tell a peer specialist who doesn't have their own experience with self-harm? What advice would you give them in approaching a peer who, who may be uh, self-harming? Um, how to support that person? Maybe I'm going out on a, on a limb with this thought, but I feel like self-harm is something that trying to think of the best way to put it so it doesn't sound confrontational but i feel like it's something that everybody has struggled with in some regard at some point in their life but not to the point that it becomes something that needs treatment i mean i know friends and family have come home and you know they'll eat an entire tub of ice cream when they get home now that's not by itself self-harm but that in that moment, you know it's not healthy to eat that entire tub of ice cream, but it's something that is giving you 
peace and and coping. It's when you eat that type of ice cream every night for the rest of, you know, the the month, year, whatever, that it becomes self-harm. So think of those moments where you come home and you're like, I really need to just, I want to most common one, you know, some people reach for alcohol, some people reach for food, but think about those moments and then go, you know, how would I help myself if I was doing that every night? Um, and then you, you kind of get a common point of reference. As you said, it's not the same exact thing, but thinking of it that way and going, okay, so this is something that they are doing that is helping them get by that they, they more than likely know is not something that's healthy for them. Um, and I think that gives you the common point of reference to kind of reach out and go, you know, that this is not something to be ashamed of. It's something that we can transition from to some other type of coping. You know, let's see if there's, um, you know, do you play guitar? Do you play video games? What kind of things can we try to work in to replace it gradually using harm reduction and things like that? I think that answers your question. <laughs> no, Absolutely. Um, I think that's a, a great and very insightful advice. Yeah, I've, I've got a friend of mine in Canada. She's she's um, a streamer. Um, she uh, she exercises a lot, and on days that she's extra angry, she will just push herself super hard. And you know, she doesn't do that every single day in order to get by. But in those moments where things are super stressful, she will just push herself really hard, and that that's in my opinion, self-harm. And I know that there's plenty of people out there who, you know, exercise or anything like that, that have done that. They take their anger out or their frustration throughout the day through exercise. And again, I'm not saying that those single moments mean it's self-harm, but when that becomes, I need to do this every day in order to get by, that's when it becomes something that I feel like needs a bit more support. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think I think that's great. You know, everybody has something like that that they do. You know, whether it's, you know, I, I had a stressful day, I need a glass of wine. I had a stressful right. day, I need to go just really, you know, go to the gym and just really push myself and get all that frustration out or, or whatever it is. You know, if you're a runner, I'm going to run, you know, 10 miles instead of five miles. You know? Right. Or in my case, it would be I'm going to run a mile instead of a half mile because I think that's all <laughs> I can handle. But yeah, no, that's that's very relatable, I think. Yeah, and I think it also speaks to something I was thinking of earlier um, was something we didn't get to in the training that we would have liked to was brain chemistry and how self-harm may have a pretty strong link to reward centers in the brain. And I can definitely imagine that having experienced it because your heart is racing like while you're doing it, like, and you do get like a sense of relief. And I think that that's where it becomes hard to replace that. But at the same time, it's so rewarding to replace it with something that you feel good about when you're done doing it. Um, I think that's what's key to remember, but it's also key to remember for supporters that when somebody is self-harming to stop, that is also hard brain chemistry wise. And um, I think that's something that you could probably relate to Abigail, um, there being like a physical reaction to it that is hard oh, to replace. Yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. percent. It's uh, my opinion on it is that it, it's it is similar to the 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 runner's high kind of concept because you know you're you're putting your body under some type of stress, so your body 
responds by releasing the chemicals that help you cope with stress. Um, and at least for me, you know, when I was dealing with, with, um, stressful situations at work or, um, or in life in general, I, for some reason, my brain didn't send out the, those feel good, those feel good chemicals to help me cope. So, um, having that sort of self-harm kind of forced my body to do that. Not that I, you know, it feels good, obviously and it, it directly doesn't, it's causing pain, but the rush, I don't, I don't want to put positive spins on things, but that, that sort of feeling at the end of it, where it's something that you can control and cope with and look at, and that the, the body's response to it is to release those types of chemicals is why I went on my smoke breaks, quote unquote, to self-harm as opposed to going out to have a cigarette um, until I started picking up cigarettes. But it was those chemicals that get me through the day. Thank you for that. It just struck me that there's probably there's another parallel here in the way that you were just describing it, Becky, and in the you know what you were just talking about. In that, I imagine that people who enjoy gambling and going to casinos, um, there's a parallel of that kind of getting that rush, um, and that's another thing that you know, just done you know, periodically, it's not a, a, a harmful thing, but, you know, it can turn into a very, you know, destructive kind of harmful type way to live. Um, and I, I guess I, I made that, an, <laughs> I made that connection because that's, that's, that's one thing that I kind of struggle with personally. Mm -hmm. um, I've never been a problem gambler, but I've always said that if if there was something in my life that was going to rise to that level, it would be that because I get that rush <laughs> at casinos. And so I, I know I need to be very careful about uh, about that part of my life. Well, I, I think that the, the parallel that, you, that you're on there is 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 something that you can look at and and connect to things like, you know, skydiving and bungee jumping and, and that, that rush, you know, gambling in itself, but there's safe ways that you can do it. You know, if you, if you're going skydiving, you're not, you're not taking a risk, you're taking a, well, you're taking a risk, but it's a more of a perceived risk because you're doing things to help, um, you know, you're not just jumping out of the plane without a parachute. You're doing things to make sure that you're going to be safe doing those things and the risk is mitigated as much as possible. But you still get that rush and i think that there are alternatives to get that kind of rush that are safe you know um i can't draw um my own common point of reference with gambling but when it comes to um you know bungee jumping or, or skydiving i can definitely see the the appeal of getting that kind of rush but knowing that there are constraints that you put on it to keep it safe um and I think finding those types of things that give you that same satisfaction or risk factor or however you want to put it um, is important. You know, that's why video games are a huge part of my life because um, you get that kind of risk involved with it that maybe not necessarily is going to cause physical harm to yourself, but you, you get that kind of rush from it. So I think it's important to to know that it's not a bad thing to enjoy that experience and enjoy that rush and enjoy that sense of risk or, or, um, you know, in some cases even pain, but putting steps in place to make sure that the, the risk is as minimal as possible, I think is important. 
Yeah. And I just wanted to say really quickly, something else that came up in the training was um, this concept of alexithymia. I think I'm saying that right. Alexithymia, something like that. Yeah. Um, which means no words for emotion. So it's a deficit in emotional processing that's common mm -hmm. in people who have experienced self-harm. And I think that's a really important um, distinction to make with coping skills is if it's something that helps you process emotion and feel your emotions to their fullest extent, um, I think that's something that we need to focus on as supporters too, is making sure that we're aware of what people might see as a replacement. You know what I mean? I, I agree. Um, Cause I definitely experienced that too. Like I was saying earlier, self-harm, there's a bunch of different reasons to do it. And I had a couple, one of those was the control and, you know, you know, putting a physical uh, pain to the emotional pain, but depression doesn't always give you an emotional pain. Sometimes you just feel numb, but being able to self-harm, put a feeling, put an emotion to what I was experiencing at that time. So it helped cope with the um, alexithymia or alexithymia. Um, it, it helped you kind of help, help me kind of figure out what I was feeling, or at least gave me something to feel when I wasn't able to feel anything. Um, so I, I think understanding that concept as well, that sometimes it's the only thing that's helping somebody feel is important as well. And I, I think whether or not someone has ever engaged in self-harm, the concept of, you know, feeling out of control and, and it, it giving you a sense of control um, or the concept of feeling numb and it, it, you know, giving you something to feel is something that everyone can understand. Um, again, whether they've engaged in self-harm or not, I think that those are concepts and ideas that everyone has had experience with and, and can at least understand that part. And, uh, you know, so I think if, if people can approach it with that kind of understanding, it brings a whole new level of, um, of uh, empathy, I guess, uh, to the discussion. I think it's important to, to have a, some type of common point of reference. Um, no matter how small, because uh, at least for me, there are plenty of times where I will go and meet, you know, I'll, I'll go and meet a client and I don't have the exact, uh, you know, you don't have the exact experience that anybody's experiencing, but being able to identify something that's at least similar. So you can kind of put yourself in that position at least a little bit, I, I think is very important. So being able to approach somebody who's self-harming and going, you know what, I have something I do it. I, I build models in order to feel like I have control at home. So I understand the need for having that control at the end of the day. I, I think it's important to be able to have that, that reference point in order to engage with people. So some examples would be like taking a red felt tip pen and marking where you might usually cut, um, holding ice cubes, um, Getting outdoors and having a fast walk might create the same feeling of adrenaline. Um, making lots of noise. Uh, things that kind of stimulate you physically, but don't have the same health effects. Uh, keeping a journal, scribbling on a large piece of paper with a red crayon or pen. Um, 
snapping rubber bands on your wrist, things that don't have the same impact and are maybe harm reduction. So those are just some ideas, but I don't know if that would be helpful to some people listening. So I just wanted to make sure I got those in there. I think the, the biggest one that, that I did was breaking things that I could break. So if I had, and it wasn't just like, you know, ripping a piece of paper because that had no connotation to me. You know, anybody can rip a piece of paper. There's no consequences, for lack of a better word, ripping a piece of paper. But I would keep, you know, broken game controllers or plates that I was going to throw out just so I could break them more in a safe way. Um, so I'd have that that sense of destruction that doing a cut or... Um, you know, hitting myself in some cases would help, you know, give me that outlet. And it was obviously something much less dangerous to do than you know, cutting or hitting myself. So that breaking stuff is a good thing as long as you can do it safely. That was one of mine. Yeah. And we often talk about writing yourself a note or writing someone that you want to write a letter to a note that you're never going to send and then burning it. We talk about that all the time. And I mean, that's something I used to do was like safely burn old photographs that reminded me of negative things or whatever it was. Um, so that was my kind of destruction thing. But I think that is a common thing uh, for people who self-harm to want to destroy something, mm -hmm. um, build something and then destroy it sometimes. Like a tower. You could do Jenga. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I know of businesses, I've seen, they're not super prevalent, but I've seen some around that are, that are businesses where they have like old stuff where you can just go and, and break stuff. Um, do you have any thoughts on those types of businesses? Do you think those are healthy uh, ways to deal with things? Oh, I, I think it's a very healthy way to deal with things in my opinion. Um my dad was actually talking about one. He travels for work and I think he was in New York and there were a couple near his hotel, but you would go in there it'd be a room with, you know, I think the one he described was, it was like shelves of, you know, generic cups and mugs and plates and they'd give you a bat and safety glasses and go have at it. You know, I don't necessarily see too much of a difference between doing something like that, that gives you that outlet and that satisfaction of having an effect on your environment and getting safe and jumping off of a bridge with, with a bungee, uh, bungee line. So, you know, having that risk factor in that sort of rush of doing those things, I think is a perfectly healthy way to do it. You know, if you have a dumpster out back and you have old glasses, you know, I think it's pretty safe to just kind of throw the glass in there and listen to it break. I, I know that's been a coping skill that I was suggested to try a while ago. So I want to see more of them. I know there's one, there was one uh, art instit uh, in installation that was a vending machine, like the snack machine vending machine, that all that was in there was a bunch of like cups and mugs and plates and you'd put a dollar in there, push the button, then you'd watch it fall and shatter down at the bottom of the vending machine. There's just something satisfying about that. So... <laughs> That is really cool. <laughs> I've seen um, at like charity events, I've seen people set up cars to be hit with mm -hmm. sledgehammers and you pay $5 to like hit the car. And that's just so fun to me. Things like that. Oh, I like that. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a great fundraiser? 
there's just something so satisfying about breaking something that you don't get the chance to break, if that makes any sense. You know, <laughs> being able to go, oh, that's a car. I would never do that to my car because I don't have the money to get it fixed. But the fact that you're letting me do this to some other random car in a healthy, safe way, that's fantastic. There's just something satisfying about smashing a plate that's perfect and, and not broken. You know, there's, I don't know, it's just cathartic. <laughs> <laughs> First, um, Abigail, thank you for being with us today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking time out of your day to, to discuss this topic with us. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts that you want to share with, uh, with those who are listening? I just want to reiterate that if you're struggling with this, there's, there is no shame in talking to somebody about it. You know, that was the thing that helped me kind of navigate myself out of self-harm was being able to talk to other people. And, you know, don't, easier said than done, but don't hesitate to kind of reach out and talk to someone. I think that's, that's the thing that I encourage a lot of people when it comes to struggling with self-harm and not knowing where to turn, you know, just talk to somebody that you trust about it. Absolutely. Becky, do you have any final parting thoughts? Um, I just want to say thanks to Abigail. Um, Abigail has been really helpful uh, in this whole process of talking about self-harm and educating people on it. And I think I can't thank you enough for um, being open and honest about it and being willing to share. Um, I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Just... I do the job. So I, I like being able to talk to people and share my experiences and hopefully educate somebody on it. I'll just uh, kind of reiterate or, or echo what Becky said. Um, thank you so much for being with us today, uh, taking time out of your day. This is such an important topic, and I think it's a misunderstood topic. You said it at the very beginning of this podcast uh, that uh, that it is um, it is misunderstood, and there's still a lot of stigma associated, and even within the mental health field, where you know we're making a lot of progress in in developing education and, 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 uh, and educating the public on mental health in general, I think this subsection of, of self-harm is something that uh, does not get discussed enough and, uh, and needs more, more focus and more attention brought to it. Um, so certainly your insights that you were able to share today um, are helpful for me. And I'm sure they'll be helpful for people listening to our podcast. And uh, yeah, so thank you again to everyone else. I hope you enjoyed this uh, podcast and found it interesting and got some good information out of it. Um, we'll be back with another podcast next month. Take care, everyone.